That was a pleasant, pleasant, pleasant surprise. I, uh, I thought I was going to have to go through my whole life listening to that song on YouTube. But I much more enjoyed you doing it. Jamie, thank you very, very much. If you have your Bibles and you would find Mark chapter 2, I want to talk to you today about don't lose focus. In our lives, um, when we're driving on a pretty sunny day, it's easy to just kind of cruise down the road and, and uh, just enjoy the drive. Uh, some of you will understand this more uh, at nighttime. Uh, it requires a little more focus. It seems like it's a little more challenging to see. Uh, you begin to worry about uh, animals running out in front of you. And so that one-handed cruise on the way through a sunny day becomes a two-handed, I hope nothing runs out in front of me. Now then you add nighttime plus a little rain and uh, you really begin to focus, right? I need to make sure that I don't uh, run up on something, that nothing is on the road. And on the way home from the Lake of the Ozarks yesterday, I passed six cars who had hit someone in the back end uh, during the rain and the stopping and starting. And it was because they were not focused. And in our lives, the same things happen. The longer you work at a job, you become more comfortable. You become more accustomed to just going through the motions, and yet so many times that's when accidents happen. That's when you don't think about things, when you're not focused on things. You've done it a thousand times that injuries happen. Same things happens at church. The longer we're a part of a church, the longer we're involved in church, we know what we should do. We know how we should do it. And so sometimes it's easy just to go along with how things are so that we accomplish what we think we should. But yet so many times we lose the focus of what really matters. The same way in a marriage. The longer you're married, it is easier to take for granted the person that God has given you. And so while you were dating and you were buying flowers and opening doors and uh, going on dates, now it is, listen, we're together, we're stuck with it, and we'll be buried beside each other, all right? That's just how it is. And so we lose focus on the gift that we've been given, the treasure that we have. And when we come to Mark chapter 2, Jesus has just, if you remember two weeks ago, forgiven a man who was a paralytic. And we saw how he has the power to forgive. But today we're going to look at who God forgives and what our focus should be to have the heart that is reflective of God. And the number one way that we as Christians lose our focus is when we forget that we are called to be humble. We forget what we were like before God saved us. We get over the fact that we did not deserve it, we could not earn it, but yet Jesus Christ loved us. He died on the cross for us. He took our punishment in our place that we might be saved. The Christian faith flies in the face of every other world religion because it teaches that you cannot earn it. You cannot buy it. You cannot work toward it. You are saved by the grace and mercy of God. Totally undeserved favor. 
And this is demonstrated in Luke chapter 18. And listen to the parable that Jesus told. In Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Don't miss the tax collector reference, it is important. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Twice we've seen this. Standing afar off would not so much as, excuse me, and I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to the house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Two people, one on the outside is the person that we would all want to be, we would all want to have in our church, to all have in our corner, and the other man who none of us would want to be, would none of us want to associate with, who none of us would want to love, God says that man, is the one who went down right with him. And so if you would pray with me this morning. Father, we come asking for your word and your spirit to be at work in this place. Father, I am a sinful man with nothing to offer, nothing good to add, Lord, other than you working in spite of me. So Father, today I pray that your word would work and move through this power of your spirit to accomplish its purpose as you promised that it would. And Lord, I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible today in Mark chapter 2 where we started, this title of tax collector is going to come up. We're going to see a man who God changed his life. And I read that passage from Luke because it is important to see the hatred, the frustration, the low view that people had of tax collectors and how they had impacted negatively the society in which Jewish people lived. But I want you to write this down if you're taking notes with us this morning, that God has a desire to save the lost. God has a desire to save the lost. As we start here in verse 13 of our text, it says, Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them, As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. A couple things that are important if you're trying to process this. Jesus goes and he's teaching to the multitude. He has a large crowd. He has plenty of followers. Even though these followers are following him for the wrong reason mostly. But yet he then leaves and goes specifically to a place where one of the most hated professions in all of Israel was. 
the tax office. Millions are thinking today that is still the most hated profession there is. But just to talk to you about what a tax collector did, it is important to realize. Tax collectors were those who came and assessed the value of your goods. If you were to have sheep or you were to have crops and you brought them to sell, the Roman government required that you paid a tax. Most biblical scholars uh, look at that as probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 50% would have been what was required. And this individual would have partnered up with the Roman government and said, this is how much I need to collect, I will pay you and that it's my job to go collect this amount back from the people. And so you say, well, that makes sense. You have a value of a product, you pay a tax on that product, and then the government gets it. But what happened was, if you were not a Roman citizen, you had no rights to appeal. They could show up and say, well, this load of crop is worth, uh, in our terminology, $10,000. You'd say, wait, it was only worth $5,000 last week, and you want 50% of that. Yep, but it's worth $10,000 this week. And you say, how could that change? Because tax collectors got to keep whatever extra they could get from you. And they would go to the Jewish people and say, I'm going to tell them that you stole that if you don't slip me a bribe under the table. And so really today, it's almost like they're taxing your houses. It doesn't make any sense what they charge or why they charge it, but yet it just keeps going up, right? I bet you love that when you get a tax bill and you're like, what? I didn't even do anything, but yet it went up and up and up. And then you go into appeal and they're like, well, I don't know, it's just, it's just tough. How frustrated does that make you? But now imagine it happens on everything you try to buy, everything you try to sell. The exchange rates between the Jewish money and the Roman money, they would take a little off the top there. And so the Jewish people of this time viewed tax collectors as almost unforgivable. There were some Jewish rabbis that taught tax collectors cannot repent. They are too far gone. They would have been unable to be religiously clean if they were to come to the temple. They would have been unable to be valued in your family. These would have been individuals that would have been hated by everyone. And Jesus comes walking down the road and says, I want you to what? Follow me. Come with me. Live with me. Serve with me. Go with me. Everywhere I go, you go. Follow me. And so you think, why would Jesus do this? If you remember, the Bible says Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. That Christ did not come for the righteous, but the unrighteous. You see, your worth does not depend on what man thinks of you. It does not depend on what your past defines you by. The goodness of God is that this, Christ died for you knowing every sin that you have committed, that you are committing and will commit. That is the grace and mercy of God. And so this person that you and I would have nothing to do with, 
who would have ruined their reputation, ruined their ability to come to church, Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. It has a very similar thought to Ezekiel chapter 34 where God is talking to the uh, unfaithful shepherds and He's talking to what a shepherd should be like and He's talking to the nation of Israel that has been scattered and that has wandered and He talks to them about when He comes, what is His mission going to be? In Exodus chapter 34 verse 16 He says this, I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. Bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. What he's saying is he is not looking for the self-righteous. He's not looking for those who think they have all the answers who have no need of salvation. Friends, that's why humility is the number one attribute that should be reflected in a child of God because we understand that everything we've been given is not because of us. Everything that we have received from God is because of His goodness, not of ours. Every blessing that we thank Him for, every goodness that we sing about, it is because of Him and not us. Without Him we would be nothing. And so it is a reminder that we are to be humble. That we are to realize that He came to us. He is the one who stepped out of heaven. He is the one who lived a perfect life. He is the one that went to the cross in our place. He is the one who died. He is the one who rose. He is the one who sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. And He is the one who is coming back again. It's all about Him. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about this church. It is about the fact that God loves Broken people. That God loves sinners. Second thing I want to show you from this text. Man will always have a self-righteousness problem. Man will always have a self-righteousness problem. Look here in verse 15 today. Now it happened. So, he follows him. He goes with him. And then this happens. Alright? There's not enough time for the gossip to get out all over town that Jesus is collecting misfits. There's not time to get out. Did you know what Levi was like? And now he has changed. This is all just happening. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and His disciples. For there were many, and they followed Him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw Him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to His disciples, don't miss that, how is it that He eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? couple things here. Jesus doesn't just ask this one detestable, wicked man to follow him. He says, why don't you follow me and now why don't we go to your house for a meal? 
I think it's interesting because where do you think all these tax collectors and sinners got their invitation from? Probably Levi. He said, I want you to meet a man who's changed me. I want you to meet a man who treats me like I am a person. I want you to treat... I want you to meet a man who doesn't view me for the wickedness that I do. Come. Come and see. It is a biblical picture of what we should be like after we are saved. Let me tell you about a man who changed me. Let me tell you about a man who made me new. Let me tell you about a man who died for me. And he's not just a man. He's the Son of God. You see, I think that is the greatest problem churches face is the fact that we receive salvation, but yet we refuse to tell anybody about what we have been given. We see here this passage of Scripture, verse by verse, word by word. If you're looking at me with hatred this morning, take it up with the Lord. I think it's interesting that we see these self-righteous men. You see, the Jewish culture taught, the Jewish Old Testament had been twisted to such a point that we are righteous, and if we are around anything that is unrighteous, around any unrighteous people, we are going to be unrighteous. We are going to lose what God has given us. And some of that was from an honest position. They had watched what had happened as they had embraced idols. They had intermarried with other religions and other ethnic groups. But what they missed was this. It's the heart that corrupts. It's out of the mouth comes what's in the heart that defiles a man. It's not sitting next to someone who is a sinner. It's not riding on the bus with someone who has a checkered past. It's the heart God does not judge like man judges. God sees and judges the heart. But yet these men had said, well, I can't believe he's around these people. He's supposed to be our Messiah, but yet he is less righteous than we are. You see, that's what it came down to. He was giving them attention. He was spending time with them. He was building relationships with them. And what they said is, but what about us? We're the religious. We're the self-righteous. We're the defenders of the faith. And He's going to them. He's going to them. How can this be? Friends, the danger that we face as believers is lying to ourselves about how good we are, about how good our intentions are, how good our motives are. Look up here. When the Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked and who can know it but the Lord, it means it. I can be self-righteous, I can be prideful, I can be selfish, I can be self-centered, and that can all be before breakfast. You say, not me. Oh, Jake, I've been doing this a lot longer than you. I, I know, I know me. Then you know that you're wicked. <laughs> and if it wasn't for the grace of God in you, if it wasn't for the mercy of God, if it wasn't for the Spirit of God in all of us who know Him, we would be hopeless. And so we see this, but I also think it's fitting too because they don't go to Jesus, do they? 
They go to his disciples. They're like, why is the guy that you're following going here? You see, they were trying to peel people off from Jesus. They were trying to just turn those who were following him against him. That's how Satan works. If you're a child of God, Satan cannot take that from you. But what he can do is he can rob you of peace. He can rob you of joy. He can try to work in the lives of your family. And he's never stopped working that way. You say, well, I, I've always said this. And I, when I first started ministry, when I was working in youth ministry, I always said that. I was like, you can say whatever you want to me. I got broad shoulders. <laughs> you can just lump it on there, right? I can be as big a jerk to you as you are to me. But I forgot about something. I married a person who is not that way at all. And so the first time we ever experienced an attack in ministry, when it ricocheted off this hard head, guess where it went? Went to her. Once they realized they couldn't get to me, they decided we'll get to her. And I'll never forget driving home from church that Sunday with her in tears and her saying, I'll never go back there again. And all of those prideful, boastful prayers that I had said, you can't, you can't move me. I wasn't near this big back then, but I even thought that then. I had to humble myself and said, Lord, I had no idea what I was talking about. And we never did go back. It was absolutely true. But I'll never forget that ride home with her in tears, thinking if Satan can't get you, he'll begin to work in the people's lives around you. I figured you'd get quiet right there. That's all right. It's still true. Friends, do not be surprised when God is at work in your life, when God is at work in your situation, that the people who are closest to you begin to receive the attacks of the evil one. Don't be surprised when you and your wife commit to love the Lord Jesus Christ and serve Him that Satan begins to try to put people in the lives of your children that will lead them astray. Don't be surprised when God begins to do things at church and in your marriage or wherever you're at and things begin to start sneaking in. Don't be surprised! It happened to Jesus. It'll happen to us. It'll happen to you. Listen to what Matthew chapter 11 says, how they begin to talk about Jesus and John the Baptist. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Look, a glutton and a winebibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Jesus knew what they were saying. Jesus knew the problems they were trying to create. Jesus knew the division they were trying to cause. And He said, I've got something to accomplish and that's what I'm doing. That's where I'm going. Parents, know what God has called you to do and do it no matter what happens. Husbands, wives, love your spouses like God has told you to and don't lose the focus. Christian, remember what God has asked you to do and do it regardless of what others say. Third and final thing. 
Not only does God have a desire to save the lost, not, always, not only does man always have a self-righteous problem, but God has a desire to work in the lives of those around you. God has a desire to work in the lives of those around you. When Jesus heard it, sometimes the Bible says Jesus knew it in their heart. Sometimes it says that Jesus knew what they were thinking. But this time he heard it through either someone whispering it to someone else or maybe they said it loud enough for him to hear. We don't know. But he hears it and he responds. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, you can imagine what these individuals thought when he said righteous. Well, that's us. We are the righteous. We have no need of being called to repentance. But yet we know what the Bible says, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's talking about self-righteousness. He's saying, you people have already made up your mind. You've you've already made up a decision that you're not going to be saved. You've already made up a decision to reject the Messiah. But he says, I'm coming to these people who have nothing. These people who are broken. These people who are hurting. These people who have nothing. He says, those I have come to. And friends, today what I want to remind you of is this. is humility. A humbleness in who God is in your life. A humbleness when you look at a lost and dying world that is broken. The Bible tells us that we are not to love sin, to love the things of the world. But what that has made us do is to sit back and hate the world. To hate the people in the world. But yet that's not what the New Testament teaches us. If you've ever read 1 Corinthians 5, you remember that 1 Corinthians 5 is a chapter about sexual sin in the church. There is some sexual sin going on in a family that Paul says, not even the world says this is okay, but yet it's good in the church. Most likely, most Bible scholars believe that this member was probably someone who was wealthy, had influence, and so the church didn't want to lose them because of what they could give. We don't know that for sure. And so some people were saying, you know, it's okay, it's not, and there was this problem. And listen to what Paul said. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the extortioner or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you to not keep company with anyone named a brother. It's a big difference. 
who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Paul says if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you are held to a different standard. And you should be holding each other and yourself to a different standard. And what Paul says, when the church, when the people who call themselves Christians, when the people who are professing to live for the Lord are living in habitual sin and won't stop, you got to treat them like they're not a believer. But Paul says, I never meant that for when you go to the grocery store. And that person who's never been in church, who, who doesn't know the gospel, is dressed like a floozy, comes walking down the aisle, that you go, oh, look at her. Glad I don't dress like her. Or that person that doesn't know the Lord, that's never been in church, is living in sexual sin, and you turn the corner at Family Dollar and be like, beep, 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 center alert, not going down that aisle. Now the Bible clearly teaches us that we should not be unequally yoked. And your best friend should not be a lost person. But I'm telling you, what has happened in the church is we are afraid that their wickedness is going to corrupt our righteousness. Yet the Bible says that's not the case. The Bible says we should be like a city on a hill. We ought to be light in the darkness. We ought to be going to share the gospel. We ought to be going to influence the community around us that Jesus saves, that Jesus can change your life, that Jesus can change your marriage, that you might be broken and hurting today, but God can change everything. And so I close with this. Humility. Humility changes everything. Humility changes a marriage. Humility can change a church. Humility will change your life. But it starts with saying, Lord, I need you. Not baptism, not church attendance. All those things are good, but it's not enough to save you. And so today, if you're here trusting on anything else other than what Jesus did for you on the cross, today could be a difference maker for you. You say, Jake, I know I'm saved. What does that mean? That means every decision you make going forward, every way that you handle yourself should always be asked, Lord, what do you want from me? Lord, what do you want out of me? Because I owe you everything. And friends, when that begins to be the heart that drives your life, I can promise you what the Bible says is true. If you will humble yourself, he will exalt you. And God will use you in mighty ways. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, today I do ask for forgiveness again. If I've said anything or done anything contrary to your word. But Lord, verse by verse, word by word, Lord, we're trusting you 
to accomplish results. Lord, we're trusting you to work in the hearts and lives of people. And so today, Lord, I pray for this congregation of people. Lord, for any man, woman, boy, or girl that's here that's lost, that today, Lord, you deal with them, convict them, give them the courage to step out and be saved. Father, help us as a church, Lord, never to forget your love for broken people. Father, for the people that the community has given up on, that the rumors have been spread about, Lord, help us to love them and go to them. Father, I pray for those who know you but have fallen. Lord, that have stumbled, that have struggled. Lord, that have been so beat down because of their guilt and failure that, God, they have convinced themselves that you no longer love them. But today, Lord, you promise that you put us in the palm of your hand and nothing can separate us. And so, Father, whatever the need is in this place today, a lost family member that needs to be prayed for, a marriage that needs to be petitioned for, God, whatever it may be, that you'd give us the freedom to respond to your Spirit. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.